My name is Alec Cowan, and you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. Hello, you're listening to the Emerald Podcast Network. I'm Frankie Lewis, a writer with the Arts and Culture Desk for the Daily Emerald. This is the third episode of Season 2 of Spotlight on Science. In this series, members of the University of Oregon science community sit down and talk about their research and current events in their field and language that we can all understand. Today, our guest is Wynne McLaughlin, a PhD candidate in the Earth Sciences Department. We spoke about her 10-month research trip to Kyrgyzstan, the mystery surrounding polarity on Earth, why she's always wanted to be a geologist, and more. Let's get to it. Yeah, so this will be our third episode of our second season of Spotlight on Science. Uh, make sure you check out the first two episodes. Today we have Wynne McLaughlin. She's a PhD candidate in the Department of Earth Sciences. Uh, Wynne, thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, anytime. So I wanted to touch, um, you have some really interesting research opportunities that you've done um, and participated in. So I want to touch on some of those. Uh, definitely first off, um, you're, you got a Fulbright scholarship to go uh, to Kyrgyzstan. Now, first thing I need to ask is how do you pronounce Kyrgyzstan? It depends on if you're Russian speaking or not. Okay. So it's Kyrgyzstan if you're Russian speaking and Kyrgyzstan if you're Turkic language speaking. Okay. They have dual national languages just to make it confusing. <laughs> okay. And uh, explain what brought you to Kyrgyzstan. Oh, like so many things in my research, kind of dumb luck. There's a geology professor, Ray Weldon, who's been working in Kyrgyzstan for a little over 20 years. So basically, 1991 was when they left the Soviet Union and declared independence. And that same year, there was a global initiative to bring in geologists from kind of all over the world to see what was going on there. And the kind of horrifying truth that immediately came out was that it's the single most seismically active or earthquake-prone country in the entire world. And that initiative kind of went on for several years, and most of the original participants stopped after that grant was over. But Ray has worked there for 20 years, as I said, and keeps bringing students back. And so what got me there, I'm a paleontologist. Normally, if you're trying to figure out how old the rocks are to figure out how much they've been offset by earthquakes, you do what's called radiometric dating. So it's something like carbon dating, but carbon dating only goes back about 30,000 years. So we use like the decay of lead or uranium or argon gas. There's a bunch of different options. The catch is most of those minerals you can do dating on are only found in volcanic rocks. So Kyrgyzstan's been the center of a continent for eh, about 200 million years. So I got brought in as a paleontologist to see if there were fossils, to see if we can figure out what kind of animals they were, vaguely how old that meant the rocks were by comparing them to other places. And the short answer is there's a lot of fossils. <laughs> and what fossils did you find? I'm curious. My overwhelmingly most common thing is this kind of weird extinct rhino called Chylotherium. It's sort of a corgi rhino. It's got a really round, fat body with tiny little stubby legs, <laughs> except for that it's like the size of a pickup truck, basically. Right. Small pickup truck. Right. And it didn't have a horn, and it had two huge tusks that stuck out the bottom jaw. Wow, that's interesting. And what do you know? Do they know what they use that for? How they how they use those at all? 
Eh, I mean, some of it's speculation. We can look at, uh, there's, the tusks have a lot of wear on them, so they were definitely doing something with them. It might have been anything from digging up roots to peeling bark off of trees. Interesting. And so maybe getting back to your research a little bit more, uh, what would you end up finding from uh, the fossil dating of these rocks? It's not as precise as you would get from radiometric dating, but I usually get kind of a plus or minus two million year kind of time range when I look at all of the different animals. And that doesn't sound great, but I couple this with a, a different type of dating called paleomagnetostratigraphy. Like, let's just smash a whole bunch of terms yeah, exactly. together. <laughs> so what I'm doing is the the Earth's poles have actually switched a lot of times during geologic history. So if I take a rock sample, I can measure if north was up, kind of like we think of it now, or if it was reversed, and compare that to a global standard like a barcode. And the fossils give me a kind of, okay, this layer with all the fossils is plus or minus 5 million years, so there's really only so many ways to align the barcode if you know that that one point has to be within a certain time period. And how, maybe like getting back to what you said about the earthquakes, why are there so many earthquakes there? So India is its own continent, and it's smashing into Asia at a pretty good clip, even though it's been converging for about 50 million years. So mostly we think of the Himalayas, but the Himalayas have been uplifted so much that they kind of can't accommodate all of the force from India anymore. And in the last, geologically speaking, recent period, about 30 million years, you start getting the Pamirs and the Tian Shan. So the Tian Shan is this kind of just crumple zone that's going on at the far northern extent. Like think of a, a dog hitting a, a like hallway runner and how it crumples up in front. That's basically Got what it. India is doing to Asia. Okay. And, and that's just creating all these earthquakes. It's the fault zones are right there. Yep. So um, all of those rocks have to shove on top of each other, which is massive earthquakes. Right. And you said you experienced over five when you were just there for 10 months, right? Yeah, most of them were pretty small. The one that was a little eye-opening was it was actually right after Ray had come to do field work with me, and we'd we'd just finished up field work. We were sitting at our collaborators, you know, breakfast table, first thing in the morning. We're on the eighth floor of this apartment, and it's shaking hard enough that you know the pictures are banging on the walls and stuffs falling off the shelf, and we're kind of like, oh man, it's, earthquake! Yeah, hitting refresh, refresh on the USGS uh, uh, quake site. And then it comes up, you know, we're thinking it's like a six in the Tian Shan somewhere. And then it comes up that it was actually a magnitude eight, and it was in Afghanistan, and it caused a really lot of destruction. I mean, that's a long distance to be feeling an earthquake. Right. And Kurdistan, yeah, is really in the central part of Asia, right? And um, it's bordered by China and the various other stands. So getting from Afghanistan, is that's an immense distance to travel. It really shows the power, I guess, of these tectonic movements. I'm curious though, shifting more to like the culture in the country, how was your experience living there and and what kind of things did you do in your free time? Well, it gets a really bad rap because it has Stan in the end of the name. And that's not an accurate portrayal of the country at all. I mean, it's the only stable democracy in Central Asia. They've had a president since 1991. They've actually even had a female president. Would be nice if the US could do that. And it's it's really stable. I mean, people would always ask me, like, oh, weren't you worried about your safety and weren't you scared there? And it's like, honestly, I felt safer 
wandering around the capital city in Kyrgyzstan than most big cities I've been in in the U.S. Interesting. And where did you stay when you were living there? Uh, I lived with my main collaborator's family, which in and of itself was sometimes an eye-opening experience. <laughs> like, I'm really glad I lived with the host family, but it does have its really odd moments. I, yeah. you know, shared a room with a my, like, host family's 19-year-old daughter, which is not really something I'd planned on doing as a 28-year-old. <laughs> and, and you said, I mean, I remember when, when we talked before, too, you also noted how most of the buildings there are still from the USSR, and it's just that style of architecture. Was that a little unsettling to kind of be in those just block structures the whole time? Oh, yeah. I mean, they're these giant Soviet block cement buildings, and I learned very early on. So my, my host family's apartment was on the eighth floor, and you didn't take the elevator, despite it being on the eighth floor, because uh-huh. power outages are like a daily occurrence. Ooh. And most of the time it's only out for five or 10 minutes, but then sometimes the power's out for hours. So in like the the third week I was there, I got stuck in the elevator for two and a half hours in the dark. Oh my goodness. Really fun. Yeah, that's never fun. And you also mentioned, I think, the the national game uh, in Kyrgyzstan is really interesting. I don't know if you want to talk about that. Yeah, so it's it's still a totally horse-based culture. And it's, you know, horses are transportation, their livelihood. They eat them for very special occasions. The national beverage is fermented horse milk, which is pretty much as bad as you would imagine. And their national games are all horseback games. The main one is called Kakbaru, which means blue wolf. And it was originally started as herdsmen kind of practicing the skills of driving away wolves from the herds. But the way they do this is you kind of have two teams on horseback and instead of having a ball, they have a sheep carcass that they've cut the head and feet off of. So there's this like 100 pound sheep that these guys on horseback are picking up from the ground and trying to race to the other side and throw in a goal. Wow. Yeah, That's, it's, yeah. it's ridiculous. It's essentially polo without the uniforms. Like, yeah. <laughs> just ended with a carcass. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I'm curious if there's uh, something happening kind of in current geology that you're really excited about, you're kind of looking forward to to researching more? Well, I mean, I've only kind of scratched the surface of what's going on in Kyrgyzstan, Mm -hmm. and I have the really rare, cool opportunity of that I'm not really working on a project that my advisor already had going. I mean, my advisor will definitely be involved in a lot of my upcoming research, even after I graduate from here, but I take having an entire country I'm the only vertebrate paleontologist currently working in with me. And one of the big kind of debates still is that I've pinned down timing for kind of some of the earthquakes and mountain building events in one valley, but not everyone agrees on if the entire mountain range is kind of all uplifting at the same time or if the edges are uplifting and then it faults kind of coming inward. And that could potentially have really big impact on these seismic hazard maps and, you know, how frequently we expect earthquakes on some of these major faults, including the one that's right by the capital. Wow. And the capital, you said, had most of the population in it, too. Yeah. I mean, there's it's a very mountainous country, and there's kind of this one very small flat area. And that could really be at risk if one of these faults were to go off. Yeah. I mean, the, the city goes right up to the edge of this the Tian Shan Mountains, and that edge of the mountains is a fault that has... From looking at 
past earthquakes that occurred hundreds to thousands of years ago. It looks like it's had 8 to 8.5 magnitude earthquakes, which is really great when you then have the Soviet bloc apartments oh, everywhere. Yeah, I'm sure those are very earthquake safe. They're surprisingly better than the new Turkish apartments going up everywhere. Really? Yeah, it turns out it's cheaper if you don't use rebar. Oh, <laughs> I guess I could see that. Maybe shifting more to kind of your personal uh, experience, it's interesting, too, that you're still a PhD candidate. I mean, uh, some of the other guests we've had on are professors, and they've been doing this for years and years and years. Obviously, I, I'm sure you hope to be <laughs> there one day, but you're still in the process right now, um, which is kind of unique. So how has that process been like for you, and what have been some of the challenges of it? Whew. Well, this is a pretty brutal question right now. <laughs> I'm trying to graduate next term. So I'm in the final dark stretch, and I just submitted like two job applications this weekend. Congratulations. Yeah, there you go. We'll see. You uh, well, know. <laughs> I have faith, yeah. At least I'm getting applications out. I mean, I, I really want to teach, so that's my plan. I've, really, I've been very glad I've been at University of Oregon as a graduate student. What I'm looking for in an ideal perfect dream job, though, is I'd like to go to a bit smaller institute with a bit more of a teaching emphasis and less research emphasis. Mm. I want to still do research, but the part of research I find the most rewarding is, you know, dragging undergrads with me to Kyrgyzstan and helping them find projects. Yeah. Yeah. And talk about that outreach a little more. Like what's, how is like finding those students like, and what's that experience like for you? Uh, I mean, I've really worked hard to do that. I've had, uh, I have a total of nine undergrads from University of Oregon that I've been advising or working with them on research and and Kyrgyzstan, working in Kyrgyzstan is really kind of ideal for that because I can come back and be like, hey, I found these things that might be a gazelle, but we're not really sure. Yeah. Do you want to figure out if it is or not? Yeah. And like one of my undergrads is, uh, she's actually now a, a master's student up at University of Calgary, but we're working on a paper where she's actually going to get to name a new species. Because wow. the uh, hyena jaw sort of blithely gave her from Kyrgyzstan as they, oh, figure out what this is, turned out to yeah. not be anything previously known. <laughs> Wow, that's impressive, though. Yeah, it'll be really cool. Yeah, that's cool. I'm curious, maybe, when did you know you wanted to be a geologist, and what was going on in your life at the time? <laughs> uh, yet another case of dumb random luck. I started out undergrad. I went to University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, and I started out as a biochemistry major and did really badly in my first term of freshman chemistry, and then sort of got passed on to second term and went, oh, God. How am I going to yeah. pass this? This is getting worse, yeah. Yeah, and I switched to a degree that would let me still do biology, but didn't require OCHEM, which was environmental science and was hosted out of the geology department. Mm. And I sort of sideways landed into geology then and went, oh, this is actually really cool and you get to go outside way more. Mm. So that's what attracted me to it in the end. Yeah, and then you just kind of ran with it from there? Yeah, I mean, I, I did environmental science as my bachelor's degree, but I had minors in geology and biology. And my undergrad, it was, as I said, based in the geology department. And when I was starting to vaguely consider graduate programs, it was like, well, I really like animals and I really like ecology, but geology is really cool and it seems like it's a lot more employable. And hmm. then I went on a paleontology field trip and managed to probably pick one of the least employable geology pass, but it was like, cool, there's entire dead ecosystems and rocks, and I get to go outside still. 
And how did you end up at University of Oregon? Uh, I applied to a bunch of different schools. I originally even looked at University of Oregon because my oldest sister is a professor here. And she kind of kept saying, like, oh, you have to apply, you have to okay, apply. Yeah. yeah. Uh, why should people care about geology or, like, science in general? It's kind of a broad question. But... Oh, but I like it. Yeah. Uh, so that's actually gets into a big part of my teaching philosophy that I think a lot of times by the time we get students in intro classes, they've already decided that science is scary and too hard and has too many numbers and isn't really relevant. But the thing is, is that it's it's everywhere. It's from, you know, do you know how to use your cell phone so that the battery lives longer? Do you know how to interpret any of the data you're constantly being thrown in, you know, newspapers or vote for this or, you know, billboards. Like, I, I mean, the single biggest classes that have really changed my opinions, despite not loving math, is statistics classes. I mean, you realize how much media constantly tries to kind of falsely alter how you think. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big part of, of science that, you know, so often these, like, I run into people that have really kind of just flat out wrong ideas because they've just never been exposed to it. Right, they, right. They they don't see how it's relevant. Yeah, and how do you how do you go about addressing those misconceptions? I mean, I think a lot of it is early education. I try very hard with my especially non-science or you know, introductory science for non-science major classes, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. I think a huge amount of it gets down to early education, like even elementary school. And it's a big part of why I try and be very aware of outreach and doing kind of just publicly visible science. I think on the scientist side, a big problem is, is that we partition science a lot so that we don't communicate with each other, much less outside of the sciences. And I think most scientists need to work on being better communicators in general. Yeah, definitely. I think that's that's totally valid. When when you tell people that you're a geologist, what what like misconceptions do you have to deal with and what do maybe most people initially think you do? Like what is that what are, what do geologists mean to other people? I mean, the first thought is rocks and it's a pretty common misconception because geology is really anything that's not alive in the environment. So there's right. a lot more than just rocks. Mhm. Mm and even then within the rocks, it's like, oh, well, you clearly either go mine gold or you're in the oil industry. Yeah. You know, even even as if I say I'm a paleontologist, it's like, oh, you work on dinosaurs. Yeah. Like, well, no. But, <laughs> or you get, are you Indiana Jones? It's like, no. Also an archaeologist, different things. Have you ever tried sporting the hat and going with that? The, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Field work's um, all about the weird hats. Oh, yeah, Exactly. What's maybe kind of wrapping up here, um, what's maybe one of the strangest discoveries or kind of things you've stumbled upon in your career as a budding geologist? Uh, I think one of my just sort of fun random factoids is the vast, vast majority of times you see monsters in movies, they're either actually just straight up fossils or they're some combination of, you know, here's a, a plankton that we've enlarged and stuck on the body of a horse or something like it turns out it's way harder to make up weird monsters than the, to just pillage them out of the fossil record huh. interesting i mean i think one of my favorite examples is lord of the rings has the wargs which are just giant fossil hyenas 
and they really were that really? big. Really? And then the um, elephants that are huge with the four sets of tusks, they weren't quite that big, but they were pretty close, and they really did have four sets of tusks. Wow. That's there, incredible. Yeah, there's a lot of weird things yeah. in the fossil record. <laughs> it's amazing, yeah. Um, the, the fossil record can be skewed sometimes, because if you only have one fossil of this one species, you don't know if that, oh, is that an outlier, or was that just this perfect representation of a species? Yeah. Do you ever have to deal with that, like, kind of judging, is this fossil a new species? Is it a, is it just a, a different version of another species, basically? Yeah, and it's it's a huge issue. So in my master's, which I got published pretty recently, I actually got to name a species and genus of fossil wolverine. And at first it was like, ah, oh, cool, I'm going to get to name something. But it's actually a ton of work. And it was sort of frustrating. Like, I, I have a jaw. That's it. That's huh. the only thing I yeah. have with this animal. But it was unfortunately, you know, in retrospect now, just enough that I could rule out every single other thing. Huh. So that's that's kind of hard. I mean, you have to then, what if I find a skull someday? You have to say, okay, does this go together? What's the odd of this? Yeah, and how did you go about eliminating the other other species? You have to go find the original papers that described every single possible other thing and say, well, this one has an extra bump on this tooth, and this one has a little ridge on this tooth, and this one's like <laughs> a quarter of the size, and you just have to literally painstakingly go through go every through single thing. thing. Wow. Um, but you did, and you got a new species, so yeah. that's that's fantastic. Um, well, anyway, I think we're wrapping up here. So thank you so much again for coming by. It was really awesome yeah, uh, anytime. talking with you. And yeah, anytime you want to be back, uh, let's do it again. So, all right. Thank you. This was our third episode of season two of Spotlight on Science. Big thanks to Wynn McLaughlin for being our guest today. I'm Frankie Lewis. If you'd like to recommend a member of the UO Science community for us to interview, leave us a comment on SoundCloud or thedailyemerald.com. The music in this episode is Zombie Disco by Six Umbrellas, which we found on freemusicarchive.org. To hear more from the Emerald Podcast Network, you can subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud and listen to these episodes right on the Emerald homepage at dailyemerald.com. Thank you for listening.